This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> on behalf of Chip Blacker and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford, I'd like to welcome you to the Payne Lectureship. The Payne Lectureship honors two uh, benefactors of Stanford who are committed to the cause of international education, I should say education and international affairs, and have uh, endowed this uh, wonderful lecture series. You have a list of some of the recent uh, Payne lectures in front of you. And we're particularly happy today to have David Heyman as the Payne lecturer. I'm Alan Garber, director of the Center for Health Policy in FSI and director of the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research in the School of Medicine. I see that at least some of you here attended uh, last November's annual international conference sponsored by FSI. And some of you may have heard Mike Osterholm's luncheon keynote address. And those of you who were there will probably remember how disturbing his talk was. It was about pandemic influenza, and it was full of doom and gloom. Not only did he describe the great human toll that will occur if there is an outbreak of pandemic flu, he talked about how our entire social and economic infrastructure would be damaged and the huge disruption that would occur uh, if we have such an event. Um, anything remotely resembling the 1918 pandemic influenza outbreak. Now, Mike, I think, ran out of time in his talk, and unfortunately, the last part of his talk, I believe, was going to be dedicated to solutions. <laughs> he didn't really have a whole lot to say uh, on that topic. Um, and beyond the message that maybe we should stockpile disaster supplies and wear face masks, uh, there wasn't a lot besides write your congressman and make sure that your local government is getting prepared. Uh, but in fact, I think that the real message is there is very little that we know to do that works once we have an influenza outbreak. There are techniques that can be used to limit the spread of infection, but we know very little about how well they'll work when we're confronted with a public health catastrophe of this kind. And in fact, we're extremely dependent upon public health authorities to help avoid this situation and contain the spread of an emerging infection like pandemic flu uh, near where it breaks out. Now, the measures that are available to limit outbreaks are somewhat limited, uh, and they're costly. We've all heard about destruction of chickens, other livestock, this is people's livelihoods that are often at stake in places like China. Quarantines, limitations on air travel. Uh, in fact, with the SARS outbreak in Hong Kong, the estimated economic losses were on the order of $100 billion. This means that people are not always enthusiastic about adopting the control measures. And effective adoption will not only therefore require early detection it requires intervention, and it requires a lot of political skills. And if early detection succeeds, it will be due to the success, the efforts, successful efforts of people like David Heyman and his colleagues at the World Health Organization. David is the Director General for Communicable Diseases and the representative of the Director General for Polio Eradication of the World Health Organization. 
He's been at WHO for 18 years, following a long and distinguished career at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Uh, if I told you how many years, you probably wouldn't believe me because he's, uh, he looks a lot younger than he really is. But in any case, for several years, he has been in charge of the WHO's response to emerging infections, and he's been at the forefront of the recent efforts to contain the outbreaks of newly recognized infection, uh, infections. Several of you have already met David, and you know that he's self-effacing to the point of embarrassment at hearing praise and admiration for his many accomplishments. In fact, I know he's already mad at me for how much time I've taken to introduce him. Uh, but in any case, what he will tell you about how he came to be the Indiana Jones of the medical world is that he's had a series of lucky breaks, or as he puts it, being in the right place at the right time. He views that as the key to success, being at the right place in the right time. And it began when he was a medical student. He went to Tanzania under the sponsorship of Project Hope, and there he became hooked on tropical diseases and what would, in essence, become his life's work. He's done a lot of other things. He's been in the military. He served on an icebreaker for a year. Um, and then when he went to CDC, which was, you might say, the real beginning of his career, he was immediately put uh, on the case when there was an outbreak of an unusual pneumonia at a convention of veterans in, uh, I think it was Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, uh, what later became known as Legionnaire's disease. So he was involved in the initial characterization and uh, understanding of this disease. Not long after that, there was an outbreak of a hemorrhagic illness that caused a very high death rate in, uh, in Africa. He was on the scene, and that was the second known outbreak of disease due to Ebola virus in Africa. These were watershed events in the world of infectious diseases, and he spent about 15 years in Indian Africa working on diseases like these, and then subsequently he became involved in some very important disease eradication efforts. And when I say important, I'm talking about the eradication of smallpox, the near eradication of polio, hopefully eventually successful uh, eradication of polio, and several other diseases. While at the WHO, David established its program for emerging infections. And I think it was the SARS outbreak that really demonstrated the value of this work. Uh, SARS broke out, it was probably initially described in, uh, or detected in China, where there was this unusual flu and then some severe pneumonias that were detected in, in uh, Hong Kong and Vietnam. It took a little while to uh, understand what was going on. David was on the scene, and this disease, as you know, spread to other countries around the world, including Canada and parts of Western Europe, but it was successfully contained, which is a good thing because it had a very high fatality rate. Uh, if that response had been fumbled, there is no telling what the damages to the public health throughout the world would have been. And once again, very recently, David has again shown that he is somehow remarkably capable of being at the right place at the right time. A couple of weeks ago, he was in Indonesia. Indonesia is the site where there have been several uh, cases of avian influenza, which, as many of you know, is thought to be the most likely cause of a future influenza pandemic. When avian flu passes into humans and gets spread from human to human, it's very important to have access to the virus samples in a place like Indonesia to be able to begin work on vaccines. 
The Indonesian government was balking at making vaccine samples available to researchers around the world. Somehow David goes to Indonesia and then there's an announcement that Indonesia will cooperate and make its virus samples available. Uh, he will not say anything about his specific role in this, but many of us believe that he may have had something to do with the successful outcome. So David seems to be a person who's been lucky throughout his career, somehow being at the right place at the right time, and the rest of us benefit greatly from this, I believe. Thanks to David and his colleagues, our, our defenses against avian influenza or pandemic influenza will not be limited to strict hand washing and surgical face masks. Hopefully we'll have something more effective available at the front lines. So it gives me great pleasure in welcoming David as the, this year's pain lecturer. David? Thank you very much, Alan. Um, I'm really pleased to be here as Payne Lecturer today, and I'm also very moved by what you said, and I'm, I'm actually humbled because behind all the experiences that I've had have been an incredibly supportive public health team and a superb wife and family. And without those, these two ingredients could not have permitted the world to face many of these problems. At the same time, it reminds me that it's all of our responsibility, our collective responsibility, to put up the defenses we need to ensure that there's public health security in this new century, in the 21st century. And that's the theme of the talk that I will give today. I'd just like to start with a map that many of you have seen before, but it shows you some of the emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases that have occurred in the world over the past 10 years. It's not so important to know the names of these diseases. These are only a few. But what's important is to notice that they occur on every continent in every country. And also, it's very difficult to keep the map up to date. This shows you some of the recent outbreaks that are being followed by WHO and its partners as we move ahead into the 21st century, into the year 2007, in trying to make sure that our defenses are there against public health threats. Now, these infectious diseases, these emerging diseases, don't come into the, into, to, to, to Earth on the tail of a comet. They really come mainly from animals. And this just shows you some of the 40 newly identified infectious diseases since 1976. And they include diseases like Ebola, like um, HIV, like H5N1, diseases that are clearly zoonotic diseases in animals that come into humans but then can spread from human to human. Others of these diseases come from animals like the uh, Hendra virus or the BSE, mad cow virus, uh, prion disease, that come from animals into humans but don't spread from human to human. They find humans as a dead end, but they do cause sickness. So when these diseases come from an animal into humans, we really don't know at the beginning what they will do or how they will act. But we do know that we must be prepared. The first population, unfortunately, that always suffers from emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases is unsuspecting healthcare workers. And this shows you an outbreak of Ebola in Zaire in 1995, Zaire being the, the, presently the Democratic Republic of Congo. What you can see here is that on the 7th of March, a patient was admitted to the hospital in Kikwit. And a few days later, 
two health workers who had treated him, one a laboratory worker, and one uh, uh, a nurse became ill with the same disease. This was unrecognized, of course, as being Ebola. It was a high fever with hemorrhage. One of those health workers died, but they both were able to infect family members before they got seriously ill. One died, the other was transferred to the second hospital in Kikwit. And from there, he began an outbreak, which was mainly in health workers, and then went to the community from these health workers. So health workers have a very important role to play. Not only are they sentinel populations, but they must be careful that they don't become ill. So it's a very important role of health workers. This shows you an even more dramatic example of health workers in a more recent outbreak in China, the SARS outbreak, showing you that this outbreak began in, in mid-November, but it really didn't begin to amplify in transmission until health workers became sick. They were the drivers of the epidemic. The epidemic occurred among health workers, then went into the community from those health workers, and was a community disease throughout the Guangdong province in China spreading then to other parts. One of the health workers who was treating patients in Guangdong went to Hong Kong to a hotel in Hong Kong. He was very sick. He vomited in the hotel. He was sneezing. He was coughing. And he somehow transferred the disease to people who went off to Canada, Ireland, the US, Singapore, uh, Vietnam, and New York, Germany, and Bangkok from those two lower sites. In addition, 219 healthcare workers were infected and linked to this doctor. So not only do health workers spread infections nationally, they can also be the source of international spread of an infectious disease. And these emerging diseases, of course, enter a world where there's an increase in international travel. 1.6 billion travelers by air last year um, in the world. When they enter this world, they can enter in humans, and this shows you a very interesting and um, in some means sad outbreak that occurred with the Echo Challenge, a triathlon in Malaysia. Somehow, 33 of the 312 participants came infected with leptospirosis, a bacteria which is passed from rats in their urine to water and somehow infected these athletes. They returned home some of them died because they weren't diagnosed properly, uh, but none of them spread the disease to others because this is not a disease, fortunately, that spreads to others. But it does show that humans can transmit these infectious diseases around the world while they're still in the incubation period because none of these athletes were symptomatic when they left Malaysia. Insects also carry infectious diseases around the world, and this shows you what's called airport malaria. Malaria that occurs in workers in airports or in people living near airports who have never traveled. They get infected from a mosquito which hopped on an airplane in a malarious area, hopped off the airplane in a temperate climate, and passed malaria on to workers in the airport. So not only are humans transmitting infectious diseases around the world, insects are playing a role as well. And we've seen it here with West Nile fever. We've seen it with an outbreak of dengue, which came in in mosquitoes breeding in tires, in the water in tires on a ship that came in from Thailand. So infectious diseases are constantly spreading around the world in humans and in insects. But they also spread in food and in food products and in livestock. And this shows you just as international travel has increased, so has international trade. And with that trade, diseases are spread. 
This shows you the epidemic of mad cow disease in humans in the United Kingdom, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. This has been an outbreak which is still going on, which infected humans in 1995 and since then. It infected humans in the 1990s, but the first case occurred in 1995 in humans. Before it was known that this disease could infect humans, it was an outbreak in cattle. And products from those cattle continued to be sent around the world from the United Kingdom throughout the early 1990s. This includes meat and bone meal, human and bovine tissue, blood and blood products, food containing beef and pharmaceuticals. And there have been 30 humans infected with the mad cow disease outside the United Kingdom from this exportation. At the same time, livestock can carry the disease. And this shows you an outbreak of Rift Valley fever in Yemen. This is a viral disease which kills humans, which normally is reservoired in cattle. This disease was imported to Yemen and Saudi Arabia at the same time in 2000, the first time the disease was seen outside of Africa. The disease is thought to have come from cattle that were traded across the Red Sea from East Africa, where there had been a major epidemic of Rift Valley fever in livestock and in humans, transported across the Red Sea in livestock to Yemen and Saudi Arabia. So the picture is even more complicated. Infectious diseases emerge. They can spread around the world in humans, in insects, in animals and livestock, and in food and food products. Now, influenza is a disease which emerges or reemerges each year and causes seasonal influenza. In the low season of transmission, it's very hard to find influenza. In the winter months in the northern hemisphere, it causes epidemics. It's estimated that each year when there is seasonal influenza, um, non-epidemic influenza, there are about 20 to 40,000 people who die. These are mainly over 65 years of age, but it is a disease which has a significant mortality. And it's estimated to cost the US economy $10 billion per year in lost work, in, in sickness, and in hospitalizations and healthcare. Now, Influenza is a very unstable virus. In fact, there are three influenza viruses presently infecting humans, as you know. And these viruses are very unstable viruses, and each year they drift genetically. And so there must be a network that watches out for these viruses that can tell what needs to be put into each year's vaccine. This network is maintained by WHO and our industrialized country partners. There are 150 national influenza centers that are constantly taking influenza viruses for persons with influenza or with symptoms of influenza, isolating the virus, and sending it to WHO collaborating centers that do a whole series of activities in analysis. These four collaborating centers are at CDC in Atlanta, at Porton Down in London, at the National Institute of Health in Japan, and at the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia. These centers contribute over $10 million worth of work each, each year to WHO in analyzing influenza viruses. There are about 10,000 virus isolates that are actually analyzed by these centers. These undergo genetic characterizations so that the virus can be classified and the most predominant strains identified for inclusion in the next season's influenza vaccine. They also go under a process of development for making non-commercial diagnostic tests that are required in all public health laboratories in the world. 
And they're used to develop seed strains of virus for vaccine development and production. And these seed viruses are given at no cost to any qualified vaccine producer, a very important public good. Because if we can interest vaccine producers in developing vaccines, those vaccines will be available when needed. Now, each year in February in Geneva and in August in Melbourne, there's a meeting where the experts from the collaborating centers and vaccine manufacturers and others come together to review the genetic drift in influenza viruses and make recommendations for the coming season's influenza. This schematic diagram shows you three human influenza viruses, two influenza A, one influenza B, and those viruses have entered the human population at different times. It's thought, as you know, that all influenza viruses come from avian populations. Once those viruses begin replicating in humans and begin to transmit, they drift in their genetics. And each year, a new vaccine is required with new content of vaccine. The decisions for this are made in Geneva in collaboration with CDC, with the other collaborating centers, and with the vaccine manufacturers. Now, once those recommendations are made, it takes a period of six months before that vaccine is available on the market in the clinic. It must first go through a period of selection of the strains nationally based on WHO's recommendations. Then there must be reassortant viruses prepared that will serve as seeds. A whole series of activities for regulation must be done. And finally, each year that vaccine is on the market in the US, it's on the market sometimes as early as September, ready for the next influenza season, ready to protect the elderly and the young against influenza. Now, this vaccine must be grown, the virus must be grown in eggs. It's grown in eggs, in egg embryos, then the virus is harvested from those eggs and it's put into the vaccine development process. The market for that vaccine is mainly in industrialized countries. There are two things important on this slide. One is that there can only be a maximum of 360 million doses of vaccine produced each year based on the current technology, based on the current capacity of industry. This can be kicked up to about 500 million doses if round-the-clock production should be required. And there are only 12 companies that are really interested in marketing this vaccine. And as you can see, it's only where the market can pay for the vaccine in industrialized countries. This is because industrialized countries have justified the need. There probably is a need in developing countries. It's not yet been understood exactly what that need is because the epidemiology of influenza is different in developing countries. But there we have a process which takes six months to produce a vaccine and then a market mainly in industrialized countries with a limited production capacity. Now, Alan was talking about the uh, flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919. And I know Mike gave you some great scares on this because he's good at giving scares. I'm not going to give you the scares. I'm going to give you the facts as we understand them at WHO. Um, this was, though, truly a very severe epidemic with up to 40 million deaths, mainly in um, um, all ages, but mainly in 20 to 39-year-olds who were in the military, who were living close together, who were fighting a war. There were no vaccines and no antibiotics present, so any bacterial infections on top of the influenza could not be treated. And it's thought to have infected at least half of the world's population. This pandemic 
occurred when pandemics do occur and when flu occurs, and that's in the winter months, both in Europe and North America, as shown on the graph from that period. Actually, as you know, there were three pandemics in the 20th century. There was the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. There was a 1957 Asian flu outbreak and the 1968 Hong Kong flu outbreak. And you can see at the bottom the number of deaths from each. What's very important in the 57 and 68 pandemics is that those middle-aged persons, those persons 20 to 39, or those people even below 65 were not at great risk of death. It was mainly the same target population as seasonal influenza in those two pandemics, the elderly. Now, the hypotheses as to how these pandemics developed are different. The hypothesis for 1918 and 1919, as most of you know, is one of adaptive mutation. This virus left an avian population, probably ducks, got into a mammal population, possibly a pig, was able to adapt itself to living in that pig and to transmitting among pig populations, and then it seems it entered human populations and caused the pandemic. The genetic relationship of these viruses is shown there, leading to the conclusion that that is one of the ways that it could have been generated. The 57 and 68 outbreaks, though, occurred by a different mechanism. This was through a reassortment or recombination of genetic material when there was some intermediate host infected both with a human virus, human influenza virus, and an avian influenza virus. Now, in 57, it's thought that the human virus was the H1N1 virus that caused the Spanish pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic. But this virus had attenuated greatly by the time it went through a second wave of population in humans and remained a fairly attenuated virus. But these two viruses got into the same intermediate host. And think of it, they not only got into the same intermediate host, they got into the same cells in that intermediate host. And somehow in their reproduction process, were able to reassort and combine genetic materials and spin off a virus which had the, the lethality of a new virus in humans, an avian virus in humans, but the transmissibility of a human virus. Now, the WHO influenza network not only looks after seasonal viruses, it also looks for novel or pandemic influenza viruses. And in 1997, that network found for the first time that the H5N1 virus, which was known to be an avian virus, had infected humans in Hong Kong. It infected humans because it came from China in ducks, which were carrying the virus, live ducks, carrying the virus, but not sick. Ducks are healthy carriers of H5N1. They, in the live animal markets, in cages, next to chicken cages, infected the chickens that became sick and died from the disease. And in the slaughtering process of some chickens that were early infected, somehow infected 18 humans and caused six deaths. This caused deaths of all ages, not just the elderly. Hong Kong, under the directorship of Margaret Chan, who's now the director general of WHO, called every last live chicken and duck in Hong Kong. Every live chicken and duck was removed, culled, and the, pandemic, the epidemic stopped. There were no more human infections. After that, as live animals had been brought into Hong Kong, they'd been vaccinated using an avian H5N1 vaccine, and Hong Kong has had no more outbreaks in chickens. 
However, they have had birds come in from China carrying the virus. Now, sometime in 2003, um, H5N1, which was still probably occurring in China and in other places, began to spread internationally among poultry and caused a pandemic in poultry that's still going on. This shows you some of the chickens in Thailand. This poultry pandemic, shown in red, has reached Europe, has reached Africa, as you know, and is thoroughly implanted in Asia. The black dots show you human cases of this infection because H5N1 is a zoonotic disease. It's one of those emerging diseases that comes from an animal into a human, but this is the virus that doesn't yet spread from human to human. Now, the question today is, will somehow a human or another animal that's infected with both a human seasonal influenza virus and a poultry virus be able to make a gene, a, a virus, which has the genetic capacity to transmit from human to human and cause severe illness in humans? Or will an adaptive mutation occur in other animals, such as in, in pigs or other animals, where this virus is known to be able to infect? These are the questions. Nobody can tell you whether this virus will cause a pandemic. Nobody can predict any numbers of people who might be sick or the severity. Because this virus could just as easily mutate into a less virulent form, into a form that would never transmit from human to human. So nobody can give you, even Mike Osterholm, cannot give you the prediction of what will happen. But we do know that the most important thing today is to stop the pandemic at the source. And as long as that H5N1 virus is in any poultry population anywhere in the world, there's a risk that H5N1 will cause a pandemic. So culling of chickens, especially in areas where there's a dense infection of chickens, is important. And at the same time, using H5N1 vaccine in chickens, understanding that H5N1 vaccine in chickens doesn't stop their infection. It only prevents disease in those chickens. So when you vaccinate chicken populations, there must be an unvaccinated sentinel chicken to tell you if your flock has H5N1 because that chicken will get sick. So it's not so easy to vaccinate, and vaccination really doesn't get rid of the virus. Only culling of chickens get rid of the virus. And the other thing that you can do and that people are doing is vaccinating those people who are culling the chickens with the seasonal influenza virus so that they have no possibility of becoming doubly infected with seasonal and avian influenza. Now, there's a series of phases of pandemic alert that's been established for avian influenza. And right now we're at phase three. We're at an area where there are human infections from chickens with a new virus. This is an H5N1 novel new influenza virus. But there is very infrequent human to human spread. There have been two instances when this virus is thought to have spread from one human to another, one in Vietnam, one in Indonesia, and it's thought that possibly back in 1997 there was also one human-to-human -human spread in Hong Kong. But those human-to-human -human spreads are very difficult. It seems there has to be extremely close contact to another human who's sick, and so far we remain at phase three. Should we move to phase four, the world would be in very serious danger. Phase four is a small cluster of human-to-human -human transmission, but highly localized. And that's what WHO and our surveillance network is trying to find. 
that first indication of when there might be a cluster of human-to-human -human spread. Should that occur, there are a few things that we would like to see done. And we've already had exercises in countries with many different countries where H5N1 human infections are occurring to get the logistics ready should this occur. So to interrupt transmission from a human-to-human -human outbreak to prevent further spread and to stop a pending pandemic, you would do a ring containment exercise, but you must detect early enough and respond early enough to have success. At the same time, you must prevent human-to-human -human transmission either using an antiviral drug or a vaccine made from the H5N1 virus or, of course, social distancing, getting people apart. But we're talking about a very small area, and one of the major hopes is that if the pandemic should go to phase four, it would be early detected, it would be stopped early. This may or may not occur. We're very limited, though, in what we can do should this occur, and what we should do, would be able to do if there is a pandemic. As you know, there are antiviral drugs, ozotamivir. Tamivir is the main one, but the production capacity of those drugs is limited. And the market is skewed towards industrialized countries, which have bought all surplus ozotamivir for their own stockpiles. The US, for example, has a stockpile that would cover every individual in the US with several doses of ozotamivir. Some developing country manufacturers have been licensed by Roche to produce ozotamivir and are increasing the global supplies, but slowly. H5N1 and pandemic vaccine, remember our com production capacity is limited to 500 million doses and six months to begin to get those doses available should we need a vaccine for a pandemic. Again, the market is skewed towards industrialized countries and no developing countries produce influenza vaccines. Now, that has led to a very unequal access to antiviral drugs and pandemic vaccines. No surprise, because there's an unequal access to almost every public health good in the world. And it's the developing countries that suffer when these things occur. In industrialized countries, there are stockpiles of ozotamivir, and the payment is guaranteed. There's money, and those payments are standing there waiting for the, the drugs to be produced and stockpiled. There are H5N1 vaccines being developed, and stockpiles are being developed with guaranteed payment in industrialized countries. There's also, unfortunately, national legislation in countries where vaccine manufacturers exist so that should there be need for a pandemic vaccine, this could be a virus different from H5N1, remember, but should there be a pandemic vaccine, no industry would be able to export that vaccine until national capacity has been met. So we have a very skewed issue here with industrialized countries having access to what's available. Developing countries, some have ozotamivir stockpiles, but their financial resources are limited. It's very difficult for them to invest in a stockpile for HIV when AIDS, TB, and malaria are killing their populations. At the same time, there are international stockpiles for developing country distribution, generously maintained by ASEAN, by the US government, and by WHO. These are limited to millions of doses, not hundreds of millions of doses. And there is an H5N1 vaccine stockpile. There is not a possibility of an H5N1 uh, vaccine stockpile in developing countries because there's no vaccine production capacity in those countries and 
vaccine production capacity now is 100% sold to industrialized countries. So there's an inequality, as there is with most infectious diseases, between developing and industrialized countries. Now this inequality has led to what Alan referred to earlier, to a real discontent in developing countries. And more importantly than that, a real mission of a Minister of Health in Indonesia to call the world's attention to this inequality and try to help resolve the problem. Now we could look at this as a very difficult situation. The Minister of Health has told WHO she will no longer share any Indonesia viruses with the global surveillance network, which means we don't know what's going on in humans' infections, we don't have sequences, we don't have diagnostic tests, and we don't have seed viruses to give to the manufacturers. She's gotten a rally of other countries behind her, and this again is her privilege, and this is her priority in, in life to do this, and she's right. She's calling the world's attention to the fact that there is not an access to vaccines or the benefits of virus sharing in developing countries. And it just so happens that it's only developing countries that are now having H5N1 human infections. What does this mean? This, mean that there, this means that there's an inability to determine the rates at which the virus is mutating or developing resistance to antiviral drugs. There's an inability to select appropriate vaccines for vaccine development because there's a blank spot where Indonesia exists, which has the most cases. There's an inability to prepare seed vaccines for vaccine development and preparation. And there's an inability to provide seed viruses to vaccine manufacturers, something which never before became an issue because seasonal vaccine is only of interest in industrialized countries. Developing countries need to have pandemic vaccines. In a world where there are 500 doses, million doses of vaccine and 6.2 billion people, there's a major problem. Now I have to clarify one thing. This 500 million dose capacity is for a vaccine which has three different viruses in it, you know, the three human viruses. If we really needed a pandemic vaccine, we would only need probably one vaccine. So you could increase that 500 million to 1.5 billion doses of seasonal vaccine uh, in the seasonal vaccine production capacity. But no matter what, this issue in Indonesia is disrupting the H5 and eventual pandemic vaccine production in the world. And it's not enough that we acknowledge this problem, we have to solve this problem. Now, working towards universal access, uh, the Director General at WHO is doing certain things right now that we hope will lead to a resolution of problems of access, at least in the short term and possibly in the long term. Right now, there are activities underway to create an international stockpile of H5N1 vaccine that would be available to developing countries for use in the event of early human-to-human -human transmission, to ring off that early human-to-human -human transmission. That stockpile would be maintained by WHO, released under certain criteria, and there's a meeting the 25th of this month in Geneva when manufacturers of vaccines, when industrialized countries and developing countries will come together to figure out how to move this ahead. At the same time, there will be efforts to develop an international reserve stockpile of pandemic vaccine should a pandemic occur. This will have to be a virtual stockpile, a vaccine which is not yet being made, and it would have to be a tripartite agreement between an industry, 
the World Health Organization and the country in which that industry sits so that WHO would be sure that it got the vaccine if it had the advance payment and was able to get that vaccine. In the longer term, the solution to the problem is a transfer of vaccine manufacturing capacity to qualified developing country manufacturers so that they contribute vaccine to the global pool of vaccine and also to developing country needs. And we're very aware that developing country scientists want to be equal partners with their industrialized country scientists in self-sufficiency for influenza diagnosis and research. So these are some of the demands we've been able to understand um, from the Minister of Health in Indonesia through a series of meetings. And um, two weeks ago, the minister was smiling for the, the newspaper and has said that she would resume sharing her viruses immediately. Um, as of yet, those viruses have not been shared. Uh, we're waiting for those viruses to come. But she has agreed that she will again share those viruses, but only up to the stage of preparation of seed viruses for vaccine. The collaborating laboratories can prepare those seed viruses, but she will not permit them to be given to companies to develop a vaccine because she wants to negotiate first with those companies. We've told her the weakness of this idea and the difficulties that will happen because right now there are 40 companies waiting to get an Indonesia strain of virus. If she begins her negotiations with those countries, probably very few, if any, will continue the development process of vaccine. They'll go for another H5N virus from another country, and Indonesia will be at great risk. This message has been conveyed not only to the minister, but to the president. Uh, our director general visited the president a couple weeks ago and conveyed this message to him that not only are they putting the world at risk, they're also putting Indonesia at great risk of not having a vaccine should they need one. So we hope the problem is on its way to resolution. There will be a series of meetings, as I said, another meeting with developing countries next week in Geneva, then with industry and donors, and hopefully we'll be able to meet the requirements that we feel the ministries will accept, not only in, in, um, in Indonesia, but in other countries such as Thailand, as we move forward to continue free sharing of influenza viruses to guarantee global public health security. Now, what's the risk assessment today for avian influenza? Well, I'm not going to give you a single number because I don't know a single number. All I can tell you is that there's a highly virulent H5N1 virus moving around the world in avian populations, and occasionally this breaches the species barrier and infects humans. The overall risk of a pandemic from this virus cannot be quantified, but it's real. And we don't know what other H5 virus might come, or HN, or H, any, any other virus might come out and do the same thing. We know, though, that there's a six-month interval from identification of pandemic virus to vaccine availability. There's a limited vaccine production capacity. There are antiviral drugs available for prophylaxis or treatment, but these have really never been tried in those situations. And our global surveillance system of free sharing of influenza viruses is in jeopardy. What happens if we fail, if we don't get vaccines, if we don't have the proper culling of chickens and the proper control in chickens? Well, then there will be a pandemic if this virus turns into a pandemic strain. If that pandemic occurs, the most important non-pharmaceutical intervention will be social distancing, distancing, head for the hills. Close the schools, close the theaters, close every place that collects public people, and make yourself, uh, freely isolate yourself 
from others. At the same time, there will be in the U.S. ozeltamivir and zanamivir because there are stockpiles that have been set up by the U.S. government, but those stockpiles are rapidly moving on to uh, expiration. And in addition, those drugs have never been tried in a pandemic, and there is resistance of H5N1 already developing. There's a biological intervention, develop and use a pandemic vaccine, and hopefully that will be another possibility. But the world is very poorly prepared if there's a pandemic that should arrive today. And we're actually not much further away than we were in 1917 and 1918 when we were told to social distance and stay away from people who had influenza. So there are many things that we can work on as we move ahead towards global security. But global public health security is not a new concept. This concept has been present since the 14th century at least, when it was first written down. In the 14th century in Venice, there was a quarantine for plague. Keeping ships in harbor for 40 days, quarante, 40 days in the harbor, in order that plague would die out on those ships. If there were people with plague, it was felt that they would be determined and died by then. Although, as you remember, the cause was not known. But the ships were kept out at bay in Venice and also in all other ports in Europe. But it didn't do much to prevent the plague pandemic that did spread through Europe in the Mid-Ages. In the 19th century, there were many different attempts to, uh, in Paris and in, in, in other countries to set up international sanitary conferences. That is, international agreements to help limit the spread of infectious diseases. These were mainly attempts to shut your border to infectious diseases. These continued through 1947, 51, and 69 to the international health regulations in Geneva, which is the current international regulation that's attempting to ensure the maximum security against the international spread of disease with a minimum interference in world traffic. These regulations are really outdated regulations. They're regulations that try to stop disease from entering through border posts by setting out guides for ship sanitation and guides to hygiene at, um, in airports. They require notification to WHO of three diseases, cholera, plague, and yellow fever. They require health organization at the borders, and they establish minimum, maximum measures that countries can do to prevent the entry of these diseases. If you've carried a yellow fever vaccination card, you've participated in the international health regulations. Now, in a world where there are many different emerging infectious diseases, cholera, plague, and yellow fever are really insignificant. Cholera is on this map, but it's all over the world. Plague is not on this map. Yellow fever is on this map in West Africa. But there are many other diseases that we're also worried about that are also on this map. At the same time, we know that these diseases can't be stopped at borders. Nobody can set up a border post and put something there which will stop a disease from coming into, through that border and infecting others. And we also know that these diseases cost money to economies when they occur. Mad cow disease cost $39 billion to the United Kingdom from 1990 to 1998. These diseases are costly. So no country in its right mind will report cholera, plague, or yellow fever, and they don't. They don't report, and WHO cannot police because WHO is not a policing agency. So we have to accept that these regulations are in place, but they're outdated. What happens is 
a first case of a disease occurs, a country either reports late or doesn't report at all because they don't want to let anyone know they have it. And then there's a delayed response. The outbreak is uncontrolled. It makes people sick and kills them in the country, and there's a risk of international spread. This is the exact scene in the Guangdong province in China for H5N1 and for other diseases. So understanding that these regulations were important, and they are important because this is an international treaty that's been signed by 193 member countries of WHO. No other treaty in the world has that many signatories. This is a treaty, and to modify it and bring it up to date, WHO developed a vision of a world on the alert and able to detect and collectively respond to disease threats within 24 hours using the most up-to-date communications, getting the evidence necessary. Now, in setting up this new way of working within WHO that, so that the regulations could eventually be revised, um, the Ministry of Health of Canada was one of the strongest allies of WHO. Early on in the 19, in 1990s, Canada came to WHO and said, we're ready to help you in any way to set up an emerging diseases program. One of the first things we decided that we needed was a way to determine whether diseases were occurring that weren't being reported by countries. Now, this was very improper to do in an international organization, which only accepts reports from countries. But we agreed with Canada that it should be done, and we defied our legal department in doing it. So Canada set up what's called the Public Health Intelligence Network, which is a web crawling system, crawling the web in seven different languages, entering all open sites, looking for reports of infectious diseases based on a set of keywords that are programmed in on a regular basis. To show you the power of this system, this is an outbreak that occurred in Afghanistan in February 1999 during the period of the Taliban. GFIN reported to WHO of a highly fatal respiratory disease in, a southern in northern Afghanistan in a very rural area. The report had come from GFIN, which had searched several sites on the web, but had come across an English language newspaper in Dushanbe in Tajikistan on the border of Afghanistan that had transcribed an article from a local language paper on the border talking about an outbreak of infectious disease with high mortality in Afghanistan. We received the report. Our WHO local office and team went in to do a preliminary investigation. They requested a collaborative team from all of WHO's many partners around the world that came in, and the investigation was completed and diagnosed within a couple weeks. This turned out to be seasonal influenza in a population that hadn't had influenza for the previous 30-some years, so no one had immunity. They were getting infected, they were getting superficial bacterial infections, and they were dying. But it shows you the power of a system sitting in Canada, crawling the web, able to find an outbreak in rural Afghanistan during the period of the Taliban. So using GFIN, which you can see on this uh, in the lower right, and some very important laboratory networks and epidemiological networks and other informal networks, including NGOs like the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders who have people working in many countries, WHO has set up a network of networks that pulls in information from all these areas, 
When there is a need for a response, WHO again goes out to this whole network and gets people to come and help with that response. Very shortly after it was put into effect, this network became a great source of information, and GFIN actually became the major source of information about infectious diseases to WHO, again making our legal people very uncomfortable. In fact, what you can see is on the left, the WHO regional offices and the WRs were our country offices, reported very few infectious diseases, 23 of those reports, whereas informal networks and NGOs, including GFIN, gave us 77% of all of our reports, a new change in the way WHO could get information. Well, we treated this information very cautiously in confidence with countries, and we mounted with them investigations when necessary. There you can see uh, the outbreak in 1999, the uh, Afghanistan outbreak, to which there was a WHO response. WHO was developing a proactive way of working, actively seeking disease information and responding to those diseases, hoping to control better the international spread. Now this shows you that network, this, this network here. That shows you this network in Asia in detail. There's GFIN, which covers the world but also covers Asia. FluNet, which is the WHO laboratory network for influenza, which we talked about. And then many other networks, some of these purely surveillance networks, some of these epidemiological networks responding to disease problems in those areas. All these networks are now linked together through WHO and are constantly looking out for infectious diseases. It was on the 16th of November in 2002 that GFIN, sitting up in Canada, in Chinese, found an article in a Chinese newspaper in the Guangdong province about an outbreak of respiratory illness and the government was recommending isolation of anyone with symptoms. There's a daily validation process of anything that comes in from GFIN to WHO, and in the morning at 9 o'clock, a decision is made what to do with all the information from GFIN. That morning, a request went to the government of China, and the government responded back on the 7th of December that this was normal influenza B activity in a seasonal situation where influenza was occurring. They had actually identified influenza B virus in 28 people in the area. We were very concerned at WHO and our partners were concerned because Guangdong and southern China is where pandemics have begun in the past from H5N1 and other, or from other influenza viruses. And we knew that H5N1 was circulating there because it had already gone out into Hong Kong in 1997. So we were very concerned that this was an influenza pandemic. We accepted the information from the government and we continued with our global surveillance activities globally. Again, on the 11th of February, GFIN, sitting up in Canada, found another Chinese newspaper report, but this time it was an outbreak of atypical pneumonia among health workers, those sentinel populations who are the ones who get disease and spread it from health facilities to the community. The government came back with a report that this was an outbreak of 305 cases and five deaths. The influenza virus had not been isolated, but they assured WHO that it was over. On the 26th of February, a 48-year-old businessman with a high fever, atypical pneumonia, and a respiratory failure was admitted to a hospital in Hanoi, having just traveled to Vietnam from China and Hong Kong. 
this was reported to our WHO country office, which investigated the case. And actually, one of our health workers became infected and died with this investigation. Then the 4th and 5th of March, we received reports that medical staff in both Hong Kong and Vietnam were sick. This was the, the, the alarm that something was really going bad. So on the 12th of March, WHO made its first global alert. Now, WHO didn't want to create panic in the world, but it did want the world to understand that there was something going on in Vietnam and Hong Kong. And so all ministries of health in the world were notified, as were newspapers, that there was an atypical pneumonia occurring in Vietnam. And that pneumonia was described in, 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 in a little bit, but some detail. Two days later, by the 14th of March, we had at WHO calls from Ontario and Singapore that they had a disease that fit this definition. These were people with an atypical pneumonia, severe atypical pneumonia, and they had been in Hong Kong. On the 15th of March, which was a Saturday morning, and I always like to say that important public health events always occur on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday morning, but this was a Saturday morning. Um, at 2 a.m., Mike Ryan, who was a WHO duty officer, got a call from the Ministry of Health of Singapore that a doctor who had treated these patients in Singapore had come to New York for a medical convention with his wife. He had become ill, as had his wife, and they were both on their way back to Singapore sick. They asked if we could help them get medical attention in Frankfurt when the plane landed, which we did. They were taken off the plane, they were removed, and the plane was put under surveillance. The people on the plane were put under surveillance. But there we had a, an indication that the disease was continuing to spread internationally. So the situation on the 15th of March was an atypical pneumonia, rapid progression to failure of breathing. No one had yet recovered. Health workers appeared to be at greatest risk, cause unidentified, assumed to be infectious, Antibiotics, antiviral drugs were not working, and it was spreading internationally within Asia and to Europe and North America. In fact, on this day, there were over 300 health workers that were sick, and five of them were already on a respirator. So it was a very rapid progression through the health worker community. So having this information and thinking back to that second slide that I showed you about what happens when a new disease emerges, it can either spread from human to human or it can't or it can cause serious disease. This was one that fit our category of a very serious event. It was spreading from person to person. It was causing serious illness. And our concern was that it would either become an endemic disease in, in the world like TB or malaria or HIV, or it would find a comfortable host in an animal and continue to circulate in that animal and then occasionally infect humans. So we were greatly concerned and we talked the director general with the director general and decided that we would begin a global containment activity to circle off this outbreak before it could continue to spread. We gave it a name, SARS, and a name is very important for two reasons. Number one, it's important because it's a rally point that everybody can come and talk about. But even more importantly, it's a controlled way of making sure that a new organism doesn't get called a name which will stigmatize either a race or a country, such as the Spanish flu has done, such as Hong Kong flu has done, such as Asian flu has done. So it was named SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, it was, guidance was given to airlines that this disease was occurring and if they had passengers sick, they should be careful. And at the same time, 
a case definition describing that disease was put out everywhere in the world so that everyone could call the same thing the same disease. We then called together our network of workers internationally, that network that you've seen. 26 institutions in 17 countries responded and gave at no cost to WHO 115 experts who could work in the five countries and in Geneva. In Geneva, at the time of the outbreak, there were three people working, coordinating activities of global surveillance and response. Immediately, the United Kingdom provided 10 more people to work with WHO. The US provided people in all countries where there were outbreaks. Many of our partners provided assistance and support. With those people out in the field, epidemiologists, clinicians, and virologists, there was close collaboration to identify the virus and to determine what was going on, to get the evidence in real time that was necessary to make real time recommendations. One of the first things we became aware of, and this shouldn't be 2006, it should be 2003, but um, one of the first things we became aware of is that SARS was spreading internationally on airlines. We now know that 40 passengers carried SARS onto airplanes and infected 37 people on airplanes. This is the most important area of uh, plane with transmission. It was um, China Airways 112 from Hong Kong to Beijing. Either in the waiting room or on the airplane, the passenger circled in red infected passengers and, in addition, staff of the airplane. So with that information, we were able to make some real-time guidance. And I'm just going to divert a little bit to show you what what country did, because I think it's quite incredible uh, what can be done in epidemiology. But this was, um, this was the recommendations, that countries should try to help passengers who were sick or who had contact with a patient with this disease not to travel. They should discourage international travel of people who might be carriers of this disease. Now, Hong Kong, which had a very intuitive health officer, Dr. Chan, but also had a very important database in the police department, participated in this outbreak in a way that was very creative and very effective. The police department maintains a database called MIDAS. And in that database, they enter every petty crime, the location, the time, everything about that crime. And every day, they print, make a printout to show where there's clusters of petty crime. Where those clusters are occurring, they increase their police force. They try to prevent future clusters of crime in that area. Now, Margaret Chan set up a public health office in the police department, and they entered every bit of information they had about persons with SARS and about contacts into a separate channel, a confidential channel, in MIDAS. And here's one of the printouts they made. It shows in the upper left a cluster of SARS patients. And at the right, it shows that these were clustered around two restaurants in Hong Kong. This facilitated their outbreak investigation. This facilitated their containment activities. It also permitted them to implement what WHO had recommended to help people not travel if they were sick. That database was hooked into the immigration system. And every time somebody tried to travel whose name was on that database because they were a contact or a person with SARS, they were asked not to travel. At the same time, they set up remote temperature devices on all borders, at the train, at the road, at the airport, looking for people who had fever, trying to help them stop traveling. And they actually did find 79 people with fever. And two of those people later turned out to have SARS. But 
Hong Kong said they did this to restore confidence in travel rather than to be epidemiological effective at, this, at the start. Well, after these recommendations were put in place, people continued to travel internationally. We knew this with SARS. And in addition, there was one more complication. In Hong Kong, there was an apartment building where there was a cluster of cases of SARS that had neither contact with another person with SARS or could be traced to any possible group where there were SARS patients. This was in an apartment complex, and it was feared at this time that not only was SARS passing person to person, but that it was also passing from some object or some way in the environment, either through a vector or directly on an environmental contamination. So this caused WHO to have great concern and to look at other countries which were not able to, eat, to search to trace all of their cases back to contact either. And in any of those cases, it was assumed that there might be transmission in the environment as well, endangering people who were casually visiting. So that's when WHO got very serious and made recommendations not to travel to countries. Well, these recommendations, we believe, did help in stopping the outbreak. The outbreak stopped. The outbreak was very difficult to determine at the start. It was periodic, so China didn't detect it. They didn't report it when it did occur to increase in China, and then it spread throughout the world. The outbreak was stopped in four months. What happened when WHO made its travel recommendations is very interesting. On the, on the 27th of March, WHO said that people should be screened at airports. Travel began to decrease. On the 2nd of April, WHO said that people should not travel to Hong Kong, and their travel remained at a low period of time. The 23rd of May, when WHO said it's safe to go back to Hong Kong because all cases are now being traced to contacts, um, travel increased and increased rapidly, and within two months it was back to normal. Alan told you these out this outbreak was extremely expensive. It was. It cost $60 billion in lost demand and revenues in Asia, but there was a rapid recovery. More important, and I'm just about to finish, but more important is that this new way of working, taking information from sources that weren't countries, working with countries to define what needed to be done in real time and then imposing those restrictions, costing economics, but, but doing that was then embedded in solid political will in the World Health Assembly in a resolution that was written during the SARS pandemic ensuring that WHO could take information, could be proactive in its way, and use evidence to develop containment strategies. The regulations have now been revised. They're no longer trying to control infectious diseases at borders. They're trying to help the world make a collective response. Reporting from countries and other sources of events of public health importance is accepted. It's not just three diseases. It's any event that is determined to be of international importance because it fits a decision tree, which is shown here, which was developed by the Karlinski Institute in Sweden. Um, identification of evidence-based control measures, like was done in SARS, is now done if there is an outbreak. And there's confidential discussions with countries on the measures that will be made, but they will be made prior to their being made a new world order. Now, is this new world order working? Have we been able to change the norms of hesitating to report to reporting? Well, you'll have to judge for yourself. Certainly, countries are reporting human cases of H5N1. 
Those pink boxes show you the countries that are reporting human cases. They're not afraid to report them. They're reporting cases. They're in most cases sending viruses from those cases. And the animal industry is reporting cases in poultry, but not to the same extent as humans. So it looks like we do have strength in global public health security from a revised set of international health regulations, which now decrease our vulnerability by collective work together. Collective work in Indonesia to make sure that vaccines are available. Collective work with industry to make them understand that it's not just free sharing of viruses, it's also making the goods available to the countries that need them. It's a whole series of things that we now have to do collectively and for which we have a new framework under the International Health Regulations 2005. Thank you. We have time for a few questions. Please identify yourself. I don't know if I need to stand or not, but um, my name is Cliff Tan. I'm from the Stanford uh, Center for International Development. Um, thank you for a very uh, comprehensive and informative talk. Um, in terms of this uh, idea about unequal access uh, to vaccines for H5N1, uh, the Indonesia issue, can you talk a little bit generally about what might be some ways of addressing that, you know, from a sort of global point of view? And, and do you think Indonesia's concerns are spreading to any other developing country? Is this just Indonesia, or is this going to become a more general issue? Okay, well, certainly I want to start out by saying that intellectual property, anything to do with intellectual property is not the answer. Intellectual property ensures that we have the vaccines we need. And so intellectual property is necessary. What we need to do, though, is work with industry, with countries, with everybody, to make sure, first of all, that the issues are understood. And the issue today is industry can say all they want about how wonderful it is to freely share viruses, but if that vaccine isn't available to developing countries, they are not going to share viruses. Thailand has already said they will join in behind Indonesia if we don't get this solved. So, yes, there is a movement of countries, and probably rightfully so, to now show that they need access to vaccines. The solution will be multifold. It will be certainly a stockpile at the start guaranteed vaccine if it's needed for essential workers. Thailand tells us that what they need is one dose of vaccine per 100 population. They need that in order to vaccinate their health workers and their police department and their military. Other countries have said that's about what we need as well. That's not difficult to think of a stockpile of six, 60 million doses of vaccine for developing country needs. That's not very difficult to think about when the U.S. has a stockpile, or will have a stockpile, of 300 million doses. So it's, it's possible. It's feasible. Um, that's a short-term solution. The medium-term solution is to look at industry, and we've already gone out with a request for proposals to industry, to look at industry in developing countries that might have the capacity and the FDA, or the Federal Drug Regulatory Agency, in place that can guarantee production of vaccines. We've had six proposals come back that appear to be valid proposals. Some of those start by requesting a transfer of bulk vaccine that will be finished and filled in the country and then made available in the local market. And others have requested the full transfer of egg culture technology and production capacity. But this can only occur in countries where the regulatory agencies 
can guarantee that vaccines can pr be produced consistently, effectively, and safely. So it's a complex issue, but the long-term solution as we see it at WHO is increased vaccine production. What are the ways that you can get that? One is by transferring technology to developing countries. The other is to increase the market for seasonal vaccines. And to increase that market, we need to begin using it more in the US, show that it is cost effective to prevent school absenteeism, to prevent um, uh, absenteeism at work, and use those vaccines more in the US, because that'll increase the market and increase the production capacity. And the third thing we can do, developing country technology transfers, increase in demand for seasonal vaccine to increase capacity. And the third thing we can do is develop new technologies for vaccine production, which make it easier to develop vaccines and, and in the long term, as we were talking at lunch, that may be a live attenuated vaccine in some instances. But those are some of the solutions. And we're working on those solutions, but it's expensive. Our, our global action plan for pandemic influenza vaccine for the next 10 years would cost about $6 billion if the technology transfers can occur. That's nothing to the development banks and to the US. It's nothing to a day of war in Iraq. Yet we can't seem to make that money available. And we have to work collectively to do that. Thank you. I'm Pavel Podvik. I'm a researcher here at CSEC. Uh, just to follow on the vaccine, uh, you, you talked about the stockpiles and the availability. What about the uh, capacity of actually uh, administering the vaccines? I mean, is that available, whether in developed or developing yeah. world? And how much is that the problem? That's a, that's a, very, it's a very good question. And in some countries, the answer is yes, and in some, it's no. But there are some public health resources that are in countries that could be called to action should they be necessary. For example, for polio eradication, there are 3,200 uh, 3, health workers who have been trained and are working on polio eradication in countries. Their skills are finding people with acute flaccid paralysis, collecting specimens, sending those specimens to laboratories, and helping the countries plan and deliver vaccines into the mouths of children. They work with volunteers who deliver the vaccine, and this mechanism can be called into action at any time should there be a pandemic. Many other mechanisms similar to that exist for other diseases, and these are all being thought about now. But the, you're right, access is not only a matter of making vaccines available globally, it's getting them to the people in countries, and many countries can't do that. Bill Pizzo from the School of Medicine. I was intrigued that um, you cited Guangdong province as a site that you might have suspected based upon prior experience. So through the network um, and other data, are you able to come up with the characteristics or features, I'm sure it's virus or disease related, that might highlight specific parts of the world that might contribute to a hotspot, if you will? And is that part of a, at least refining the, the surveillance mechanisms? Yeah, that, that's, it's, a, it's a real good question. You know, the, the nonchalant answer is, well, that part of China has pigs, chickens, ducks, humans living in massive concentration together. That's certainly part of the answer. What, but there must be a more scientific way of looking at that, and I'm afraid that's not been done as far as I know. But it's a good, it's a good recommendation to do because this virus has gone into many, many countries now. And, I'm Sig Hacker at the Seaside. David, thank you for a very informative lecture. The, the question I have, you, you showed us just how dangerous the world is from natural causes. 
what about malicious intent? Uh, both in terms of you know what's happened so far, and, and then what do we need to be concerned about in the future to exacerbate this problem? Yeah. Well, you know, the world is is really an insecure place. Um, first of all, I have to say that I'm biased because the world is full of infectious diseases which need attention now, known infectious diseases. There are 14 million deaths each year from infectious diseases in developing countries. And those diseases are due to just six common causes. Diarrheal infection, uh, intestinal infections causing diarrhea, respiratory infections, AIDS, TB, malaria, and measles. So we gotta deal with those diseases and we gotta put money into those diseases. At the same time, we've gotta balance that with the need to protect, especially industrialized countries, from what, what might be maliciously done. Um, and, and that's a hard thing to do. Um, there are very grave concerns in the world. As you know, smallpox was eradicated in 1980. Um, there's an interesting history about smallpox because in 1980, smallpox was certified eradicated. It was gone from the world, except in a couple laboratories. In 1981, a year later, a new disease was first identified, HIV. In 1984, a military recruit was vaccinated in the U.S. with the smallpox vaccine. He was HIV infected, but not known to be HIV infected. That vaccination, which is a live virus, was the AIDS-defining event in that person, and he went on to develop AIDS and die with a generalized vaccinia, which is a viral infection from the vaccine. So we know today that we can't use that vaccine in HIV-infected persons. We have a population in the U.S. and in the world which is unvaccinated against smallpox. We have the virus in two laboratories where there could be an accident that could escape, infect people. And we also have reports that that smallpox virus is in bad hands and that there is an attempt one day to do evil in a world that now has no immunity and a vaccine that can't be used in 30% of people in some parts of Africa. It can't be used in any people in Africa, really, because you can't screen them before you vaccinate. So we're in a real predicament with one disease, smallpox, which was a very good intent to eradicate a disease that's become now an issue which is a very serious event on the radar screens of most industrialized countries that have begun to develop stockpiles of vaccine. The same is gonna be true for polio. Polio will be eradicated one day. The polio virus has already been constructed de novo in a laboratory at Stony Brook in 2001. So even if we eradicate this disease, that virus will be perpetually there because it been, be, can be constructed de novo in a laboratory. So there is a lot of possibility of evil intent in the world, but I prefer to concentrate on the good that we can do with the diseases we have. What's known is the big risk and we have to get rid of those diseases. Hi, I'm, I'm Chris Duffield, uh, Department of Pediatrics. Um, there, I, clearly, the, the approach you're, the main approach you're taking to pandemic flu is um, developing a vaccination system. But there, there are other approaches. Uh, one trouble with that is that the virus would always be uh, mutating, and um, you know you'd have to have a different vaccine the next year. Um, that deaths actually occur in. Um, in influenza from uh, the cytokine storm, the, mm -hmm. it's the body's reaction 
And there, there are some interesting approaches um, for going after that and modifying that. And so the person would actually get the flu, but they um, wouldn't die, and then they would develop an, an immunity. And I was wondering um, if that's of interest also. Yeah, I, you know, we have Fred Hayden at WHO, who's from Hopkins, I think, who's working on issues related to other therapies in addition to Ozeltamivir. But again, remember that the same issues will arise, an inequality in access, and we'll be able to deal with those diseases in industrialized countries, possibly. But again, in developing countries, it'll be difficult. So yeah, there is work, I'm sure, and there needs to be work on all fronts. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you again for an excellent and clear talk. Uh, Steve Schneider from Biological Sciences and the Center for Environmental Science and Policy here. Uh, as I was watching your numbers for the 500, uh, for the 500 million relative to the 6 billion, I began to wonder whether that system was designed by the ancestors of the lifeboat designers of the Titanic. <laughs> but to get back more seriously to the other point that you made, I work in global climate change and there's a tremendous number of analogies uh, where the minister in Indonesia basically holds the, uh, the health of her own country and the world hostage to her anger about inequity. We have exactly the same thing for greenhouse gas emissions from a number of developing countries. And while you understand that it's a very bad solution, the real solution is resource transfer and development of indigenous capacity. So you mentioned the, uh, the six billion or so it would cost, and I was just wondering, uh, what was that involved in? Is that, is that the cost for developing uh, local capacity to produce vaccines, to buy vaccines from countries who can already do it? And just to point out, uh, you, you, uh, you did make one mistake. You said that uh, was sure the, the day of the Iraq <laughs> war, it's actually 12. Just oh. you know, yeah. <laughs> but the, what I call DIWs, which I always use in comparing climate costs, uh, but the, the other, and it is only 1% of the growth rate of the world gross domestic product, growth rate. So yeah. it's a pretty cheap number for that. But the question is, would that be enough and how would you spend yeah. it to be effective? The estimate is that that's what's required to transfer the technology and begin production capacity in six developing country industries. That's, that's the estimate. Of course, that money will have to come from development banks, from, from, from many different areas. And consortiums will have to be made, and that's what we're busy trying to run, run around doing. But countries are very willing to do this. Japan is now talking about a transfer of technology to fill and finish influenza vaccine to Indonesia. They'll pay for that. So, so countries are willing to, to work on that. U.S. government's given $10 million as a start to WHO to, to implement its plan. So, you know, there, there will be money available. But we just have to remember that this is a collective issue. It's not an issue where we beat up on industry or where we beat up on developing countries or industrialized countries. We've got to sit around the same table and figure out how to do it, or we're going to all lose. Uh, Lynn Eden from CSAC. Uh, if there were a global pandemic, uh, it, it seems quite clear that China would be very hard hit. Uh, and I wonder uh, if uh, shipping exports would also be very hard hit or if... Uh, if there's some way around that. And is Walmart actively thinking about this? Do, are they planning with you? Do you know what they're doing? No, I don't know. You know, um, the UNDP, and there's a program under David Nabarro in New York that's working on non-health sector contingency planning and different things. And I, I really don't know what's going on in their mind. Maybe somebody here does, but, but I, I don't know. Yeah. 
But you're right. There will be a tremendous decrease in trade around the world. Everything will come to a standstill should there be a pandemic. We saw a preview of that with SARS. And before that, we saw a preview in India when they had an outbreak of uh, pneumonic plague in the 1990s. They lost $1.2 billion just because people stopped trading with India for no rational reason. Hi, um, I'm a graduate student in bioengineering here. I was uh, struck by the um, cost associated with the SARS disease. I think it was $80 billion or something in the order of that amount. And I was wondering, post-SARS and seeing that the cost was mo mostly burnt, um, burnt, borne by developing countries in East Asia, has there, has there been any, more, any moves towards increasing funding efforts uh, funded by those countries towards um, their own pandemic preparedness? In other words, are countries, because of SARS, increasing their investment in Real, realizing the costs that they have faced of by these, you know, outbreaks in the past? Are they doing anything yeah. to improve the the funding situation for pandemic preparedness? Yeah. Well, you know, it's countries are are varied in their response. But what's interesting is that the banking sector is very interested, and we spend a lot of time talking with the banking sector, with the investment bankers, with all those people who lost so heavily during the SARS outbreak. And you know, there are some dangers too. You know, when, when, when announcements are made, sometimes public health departments know that there's gonna be an announcement that there'll be a trade embargo or a travel embargo. There can be lots of insider trading at that time. And so there are very complicated issues to deal with in, in, in this and, and you have to be very, very careful as you move through the system. Even if you're not thinking of that, someone else will think of it and blame you for doing that. So you have to be very careful as you move ahead. Grant, this is a short question. Thanks very much. Well, uh, thank you again for a really uh, terrific and interesting talk. I'm, I'm just wondering um, if, there's a, if there's any inside glimpse that you might be uh, willing or allowed to share with us uh, on resource allocation within the WHO. Um, I know it's an agency that has an awful lot to do and not much money. I'm just sort of wondering in light of the, uh, the, the predictable leading killers and causes of illness around the world, six for example, you mentioned a moment ago, um, how resource allocation uh, is made uh, in light of uh, concerns about emerging flu as well. How's, well th how's that for short? Thanks, Grant. No, but thanks for that opportunity because um, WHO is a, has 193 member countries, and there's an assessed contribution for each country based on their GDP in 1949. <laughs> and that formula has never been opened up again because guess who pays the most? <laughs> the U.S. pays 21% of WHO's budget. Japan pays less than 1%. And this is the way it will continue because there is no consensus to open up the budgeting. But having said that, um, the U.S. pays 21% of our budget, but the total budget that's paid is only $800 million. So WHO functions on $800 million assessed contributions each year, plus another $800 million, mainly for infectious diseases, that we mobilize by holding out the hat. We go to the, the major industrialized countries with our programs. We try to sell our programs to those countries, and we manage to get another um, $800 million from those countries. So we function on $1.6 billion a year, which is much, much less than a day in Iraq. 
So it's, it's a very underfunded organization. But um, at the same time, um, the UN system as a whole is one that's, that's not so well looked on by certain people. I would just say that, that as you look at the UN and as you advocate, if you do advocate for the UN, look at it as a series of organizations and not just one. Because there are some organizations that are really important and there are others that we could get along without. But, but, <laughs> and I'm not saying that. And if there's any journalists here, I didn't say that. <laughs> but you need to look and see as you go along with your advocacy in the US because the advocacy of, of people from Stanford and other places is very important. Because if you can get the message through that there are some organizations, and I won't tell you which ones, but some organizations that are more important than others, you should be doing that. Because we need to have a better environment in the US for the UN system. That's not with this administration, that's a long-standing issue. It's nothing against any one administration. David, thank you very much for a delightful <laughs> talk. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.